If your social media feed looks like mine, you've seen the Texas Wine Club's great reels and educational content. You probably know that Texas Wine Club selects the best small production wines in Texas by blind tasting a whole bunch of wines, then they put the very best wines into a wine club shipment. Past shipments have featured a lot of my favorite wines in Texas that you've heard about before on this podcast. Wines from Texas Heritage Vineyard, Coleman Cellars, Valley Mills Vineyards, Ready Vineyards, Tatum Cellars, Lewis Wines, and more. Starting this month, I'll be leading Texas Wine Club Educational Experiences in Dallas. Hear more about that later in the podcast. If you're considering joining Texas Wine Club, let me sweeten the deal. If you sign up using the code This Is Texas Wine, you'll get $100 off your first shipment. Just visit TXWine.com and use the code This Is Texas Wine to get your discount. Welcome to This Is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 65. I made a trip out west to interview today's guests. The Texas Davis Mountains AVA has been on my radar for quite some time, but I had never actually been there until just recently. The highlight of my trip was sitting down for a long chat with Dan and Mara Sharp, the inspiring couple that's replanting the historic vineyard at Blue Mountain. I'm completely enthralled by what they're doing there in an effort to create world-class wine from the highest elevation vineyard in Texas. It's a whopping 5,600 feet in elevation. I bet you'll feel the same way once you hear their interview. But first, the Texas wine news. There's never a shortage of Texas wines and wine people in the local and national news. And today, even international news. You'll also hear a recap of some educational events I've attended recently and hear the announcement of one I'm about to lead. Heads up, folks in Dallas. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Vine Pear isn't messing around when it comes to writing about Texas lately. They recently published 10 American Wine Regions That Deserve More Recognition, and the Texas High Plains AVA made the list. The article says, The Vine Pear Tastings Department has been seriously impressed with Texan wines this year, while many of them are from Texas's largest AVA, Texas Hill Country. The state's second largest AVA is one to watch. Texas High Plains is located in the High Plains area of the larger Great Plains. They note the diurnal temperature variation found at this altitude that allows the vineyards to cool down at night, which slows ripening. The region produces a large proportion of Texas wines, with many wineries across the state sourcing from this AVA. They say popular varieties in the region, including grapes that can stand up to hot weather, like Cabernet Sauvignon, Tempranillo, and Grenache and many of the wineries are having success with blends. They say to look for wines from C.L. Buteau, William Chris Vineyards, and Colisee. Another recent Vine Pair article named the 30 Best Rosé Wines of 2023. Coming in at number 20 is William Chris Vineyards Mourvedre Rosé from Leahy Vineyards. It's the 2022 vintage. 
and they say the meaty, savory rosés of Bandol are famous for their use of the Morvedra grape, but don't overlook the variety when planted in the similarly sun-kissed vineyards of Texas. This powerful rosé is certainly reminiscent of Bandol, with a fragrant nose, intense minerality, and medium-bodied weight on the palate. Texas, you have our attention. Well, the Texom Award winners were recently announced, and two Texas wines were named judges' selections, meaning they were the top winner in their respective categories across all the entries from around the world. The categories for these two wines are Petnat and Fortified Wine. The Petnat that beat out all others is the 2022 Lost Straw Cellars Pinot Meunier from Lechtman family vineyard in Gaines County. And the fortified wine judges selection is the 2014 Enix Stomp Light Portejas for Texas Blanc de Bois. You can see the full listing of medal winners on Texas Wine Lover website or on the Texom website. In addition to those two judges selections, there were 11 platinum medals awarded. I glanced at the platinum awards and saw quite a few wines by people who've been on this podcast, like the Hack Winery's Dry Blanc de Bois, Helmi Sellers Cabernet Franc, Yano Estacado's Murder Red Blend, Sandy Road Vineyard's Good Is Gone Red Blend, and Wedding Oak Winery's Tioja Red Blend. Unlike last year, the judges didn't pick one judge's selection Texas Red, White, and Rosé, but there were an additional 14 golds, and notably three of those went to Valley Mills Vineyards. Triple N Ranch Winery entered Texom for the very first time and came away with a gold medal for their 2020 Tanat. Italian varieties did well. Platinum medal winners included Dukeman Family Vineyards Montepulciano and Portree Cellars Alianico. Golds included Bentree Wineries Alianico and Dry Comal Creeks Dolcetto. I was happy that Spicewood Vineyards 2019 The Independence won a gold. That's a Bordeaux blend, and that wine was one of my selections for the top five presented at this spring's Toast of Texas event, put on by the Wine and Food Foundation. In Hack's 2018 Blanc de Bois Madeira won gold. It was one of my selections at the recent Women for Wine Sense presentation and tasting. Top-rated whites included the Hack Dry Blanc de Bois that I mentioned, plus Berkeley Hill Vineyards Banasu Muscat and English Newsom Cellars Albarino from Stephen Cindy Newsom Vineyard. Congratulations to all the winners. So I recently attended the Women for Wine Sense event in Fredericksburg and met up with a lot of folks who are members of Women for Wine Sense in chapters all across the country. Many of them were visiting Texas for the first time, and some were tasting Texas wine for the first time. So a huge shout out to the wineries that made this event such a success, especially these three. Becker, where we toured, tasted, and had the most beautiful lunch. Helmy and William Chris Vineyards, and at those two, we took tours and tasted and learned a lot. I couldn't really have designed a more perfect day for a group coming to the Hill Country for the first time. I made it a point to mention in my seminar the following day that Texas hospitality is truly just out of this world. The second day of the conference, attendees went to seminars there at the hotel, and there was quite a lineup of speakers and tastings. First, Ed Hellman, retired viticulture professor at Texas Tech, talked about the AVAs of Texas and led a comparison of three Syrahs from three different Texas AVAs and then two Tanats from different Texas AVAs. Both of the Tanats were from Bending Branch, and they were really the highlights of this first session for me. 
Next, Maureen Qualia, enology professor at Texas Tech, shared more about the growth of the Texas wine industry and how it's progressed since Prohibition. She also talked about various points in Texas wine history that have propelled the industry and why Texas wines can be just a little bit spendy. Her wine selections included two whites from Texas Heritage Vineyard, the Eden Hill Rosé, which was the hit of the session, as well as the lunch that followed. We also tasted Adelfo Cellars Primitivo and Spicewood Vineyard's Good Guy, a Tempranillo-based blend. Then following lunch, Susan Aller talked about how she and her husband Ed decided to found Fall Creek Vineyards in the 1970s, and she discussed some points in time that were critical in the story of Fall Creek. One of those, of course, is when Paul Hobbs recommended Sergio Quadra to be Fall Creek's new winemaker. Hopefully you've heard those podcast episodes with both Susan Aller and with Sergio. Susan also explained how three major Texas universities are working together on research to help the Texas wine industry. Texas Tech, Texas A&M, and the University of Texas are working together on that. And we also have the Allers, the Yates family, RNDC, and HEB to thank for making that happen. Susan poured five wines from the Fall Creek portfolio. Then I was the final speaker for the day. My presentation was titled Lone Star State of Mind, Texas Wines and Stories That Inspire. And my goal was to provide the human interest angle. Of course, throughout the day, we had heard a lot about weather woes and transportation challenges and labor shortages and the like. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the people behind the wines and the passion that drives this industry. I shared some information and some quotes about how Texas is showing up in the news. And I showed some photos of several wineries, founders, owners, winemakers, and vineyard workers, and told some stories about the five wines that I selected for the tasting. They include the 2021 Pedernalis Vermentino, French Connection Wines 2021 Vingris Rosé, 2017 Farmhouse Vineyards Jackknifed Reserve GSM, Driftwood Estates Wineries 2019 Lone Star Cab, and finally the Hack Winery's 2018 Blanc de Bois Madeira. I was really happy that these wines and my remarks were very well received, and I think everyone left there with a good understanding of what makes the Texas wine industry so special. Then that night, we enjoyed a fabulous dinner at Feast and Merriment to wrap up a great conference. Congrats to the outgoing Women for Wine Sense President Donna Schlosser-Long, who's from New York, and incoming President Houston's own Amy Gross, and Thanks to everyone that planned that event. January Weesey of the Texas Hill Country Wineries Association and the Fredericksburg Convention and Visitors Bureau also provided major assistance. Twelve wineries poured at the opening reception, including many that I've already mentioned. It was great to see Barbara Laquona pouring her Sibonet Cellars wines. Bingham Family Winery not only poured at the opening reception, it was also a treat to have Betty Bingham and Marissa Bingham Dotson attend the entire conference. Thanks to Texas Fine Wine and Denise Clark for being there and pouring wines from all four of the member wineries. Hidden Hanger Winery was also there all the way from North Texas. It was a really fun event. And great news, there are two new chapters of Women for Wine Sense coming online soon. One of them will be located in Fredericksburg and the other is in Denton. I'd be happy to put you in touch with the organizers. So if you're interested, just email me. 
But my fun time didn't stop there. Next, I headed straight to Nacogdoches for the 6th Annual Sages Vintage Symposium. You can read my report on that event on the Texas Wine Lover website. It was a really fun day. Congratulations to Sages Vintage partners Wes Jensen and Michael McClendon. Well, Pickpool Blanc is having its moment in the spotlight. Two recent articles showcase Pickpool, which is an increasingly popular grape in Texas. First, in an online article for Wine Enthusiast, author Melanie Young writes, If you like Pinot Grigio, try Pickpool. She notes that although Chardonnay has long been one of America's favorite white wines, consumers are clearly interested in exploring other varieties and expanding their white wine palettes. Sales of Sauve Blanc have recently surged, so much so that California vineyards can't keep up. And although Pinot Grigio has been an American go-to for the last 20 years, fans of crisp white wines may want something new to sip on this season. Enter Pickpool. She says this grape certainly has its in-the-know wine fans, and that if you've never tried it and tend to gravitate toward high-acid whites, it's time to give this wine a moment in the spotlight. The article quotes Jason Haas of Tablas Creek in Paso and Dr. Bob Young from Bending Branch in Comfort, Texas. He says, Pickpool Blanc produces higher-than-average yields on the vine, making it a more sustainable crop for growers and winemakers. The acidity of Texas Pickpool is very pleasant because the heat moderates it. The Pickpool of Languedoc is noticeably more acidic. I like the way Dan Steffen, general manager at Pure Wine and Spirits in Madison, Wisconsin, talks about Pickpool in the article. He said, it's the mythical hybrid of Pinot Grigio, Chenin Blanc, Riesling, and a touch of Sauve Blanc. Pickpool is the utility infielder of the wine world. It can serve many purposes as an aperitif, a match for seafood and shellfish, or a fun brown bag wine to take to your weekly wine group. Decanter also profiled Pickpool Blanc in a recent article. It's called Pickpool Makes a Splash in America. We take a look at how Pickpool is converting American winemakers and wine drinkers into believers in this variety from Languedoc region. The author says that Pickpool naturally checks the boxes of the style of wine that American consumers are seeking, fresh, food-friendly, and drinkable on its own. This article includes comments from Kim McPherson of McPherson Cellars in the Texas High Plains and also Dr. Bob Young. Kim McPherson says that there are still hurdles about the grape's name with consumers pronouncing it pick-a-pool. He said, we've played on this concept by creating a pool-inspired label. It helps consumers remember the name by tying it to a visual. It also makes them want to enjoy a glass by the pool in the hot Texas summers. Both the McPherson Pickpool and the Bending Branch Pickpool got nice write-ups from the author as well. Next up, I'm excited to announce that I'm going to start leading wine tastings through the Texas Wine Club. I'm sure you've seen their awesome social media posts or heard about the wine experiences that they've been hosting in High, San Antonio, and Fort Worth. Well, now Dallas is on the list too, led by yours truly. I've got two dates on the calendar this summer, and they're both on Sunday afternoons at 3 p.m. The first one is Sunday, June 4th, and the next is Sunday, July 16th. They'll be held at Times 10 Cellars in Lakewood. It's a really fun event. I attended one in High recently. You can expect to hear a little bit about Texas wine history. We'll do some side-by-side blind tastings comparing a Texas wine to an international wine. I'll give some tips on general wine tasting, and it should be a good time all around. I'm excited to bring this opportunity to Dallas, and I know that you'll be impressed with the wines that I'll be pouring. 
As I mentioned at the top of the show, Texas Wine Club selects the best small production wines in Texas, and they do this through blind tasting. Basically, wineries send them bottles in hopes of being included in the wine club, and then wine professionals and psalms and winemakers blind taste them and score them, and the very best are put into wine club shipments. You can look on Texas Wine Club's website and see the caliber of the wine that we're talking about. We've been talking about it for a while, and I'm glad to finally be on their calendar. So if you're listening from Dallas or near Dallas, I hope that you'll sign up to come to one of the Texas Wine Experiences. You can check out their website at txwine.com. And also, if you are considering joining the wine club, then please use the code ThisIsTexasWine, and you'll get $100 off your first shipment. So thanks to the folks at Texas Wine Club for making that possible. I don't know if you've heard yet about Flavory Texas, but this is something that you're going to want to know about. It's a nonprofit that encourages experimentation and learning while inspiring memorable experiences around Texas food and beverage. And the organization is working to build an educational facility in Fredericksburg at the Hill Country University Center. And the whole purpose of this educational facility is to focus on Texas food and beverages. Recently, Flavory Texas added some new board members, and you're going to recognize a few of these names, specifically Katie Jane Seaton of Farmhouse Vineyards, Andrew Sides of William Christ Wine Company, and January Weesey of the Hill Country Wineries Association. They also added Mike Bollock, who's the general manager of the new Albert Hotel, and Marilyn McNabb, who is a manager at HEB in Fredericksburg. Um, Earlier in the year, they added Dr. Ed Hellman, the retired professor of viticulture at Texas Tech. So these new board additions provide definitely some serious wine cred. And the board chair has been on my podcast before, actually. It's Ernie Leffler, the retired president and CEO of the Fredericksburg Convention and Visitors Bureau. To learn more about what's going on with the Flavory Texas project, visit... Flavory, F-L-A-V-O-R-Y-T-X dot com and sign up for their newsletter so that you can stay informed on events and future developments. You can find the links to all these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. In June, I'm celebrating the three-year anniversary of this podcast. I am just thrilled with how it's been received, and it's so fun to hear from new podcast listeners every week. I've released 65 episodes, I've interviewed 63 people, and generated tens of thousands of downloads, and really gotten to do some cool stuff because of the podcast. I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you for your continuing support, for telling your friends, for tagging me in your social media, for leaving reviews, and for saying hi when you see me out and about. And thanks for the feedback, which has been mostly gentle, and thanks for bearing with me, especially in those early episodes when I didn't know how to pronounce some key names like Bonarigo and for other mistakes or omissions that I'm sure I made along the way. I appreciate the positive feedback that my interviewing skills have improved, which is actually, it's a really hard thing to be a good listener. I do appreciate you listening to the sponsor ads that have been part of the show. I have turned down so many offers to advertise nutraceuticals and other random products because I do want this to just be about Texas wine. Thanks to the sponsors and also those who have donated virtual Texas wines to help support some of the expenses that I incurred doing this. 
the people that I've gotten to meet doing this podcast have been great and so encouraging. And that goes for both the guests I've interviewed and the podcast listeners that I've met or corresponded with. So thank you. And P.S., to answer someone's recent question, it probably takes me about 20 to 25 hours to create each episode. That includes time to research, interview, script, edit, do show notes, social media posts, and everything else to get the episode prepared to release. And now I'm adding transcripts, and those require editing too. That's why I'm doing around 24 episodes a year and not 50. So truly, thank you. Thank you for three great years. And now, finally, our interview. Dan and Mara Sharp are successful attorneys, and they're following their dream to establish a vineyard in the Texas Davis Mountains. They've planted a small vineyard of Cabernet Sauvignon vines on a historic property just outside of Fort Davis, Texas. It's one of the most remote and beautiful places I've been in Texas. Dan and Mara gave me and my friend Carolyn a tour of their property, including the vineyard they've planted, and we saw the old vineyard too. You'll be hearing more about that. And we saw where their future winery will stand. The Sharps have put their whole selves into this vineyard project, as you'll hear, and they talk about what makes their site unique, from the soil to the rainfall to the native grasses. This interview is pretty long, it's detailed, and it's even emotional at times. I'm just thrilled that Dan and Mara took time out of their busy lives to talk to me. Just when I was thinking that I'd wrap up the interview about 45 minutes in, Dan started talking about their relationship with Ben Calais, their winemaking partner, and the encouragement that they get from Ben and Ron Yates, the grind that is life balancing their day jobs and their vineyard work, and their goals for creating world-class wines. It's one of the most earnest and endearing conversations I've ever recorded for this podcast. So settle in and enjoy my conversation with Mara and Dan Sharp. Thank you for having me out here today. We are in beautiful, outside of Fort Davis, Texas, on a gorgeous day in May. I would like to hear each of you just give a little bit of information um, about who you are, and then tell us how you jointly ended up here. Where'd you start, Mara? (laughs) Well, uh, it's a long story, but uh, we did not grow up in the wine business. We did not grow up even in wine drinking families, actually. Um, but both both of us through different paths came to appreciate wine and had an interest in fine wine. I grew up in a family that was half Baptist on my mother's side with a Baptist preacher. And on her side, the other was moonshiners. One of my great uncle died in the moonshine still explosion, as a matter of fact. Oh, mine. He did. So... Kind of a an interesting relationship with uh, alcohol and the teetotalers. Yes, indeed. But we have always kind of loved this area. Um, we our first trip together as a couple happened to be out here, and so this region, the Big Bend region, Fort Davis, Marfa, Alpine, has always held a really special place for us. And we kind of kept saying to each other over the years when we come for visits, you know. Wouldn't it be great to retire out there one day? Or wouldn't it be great to live there one day? Wouldn't it be great to have a place out there one day, even if, you know, it was just for vacations? Someday, someday, someday. And we had a chance encounter after a trip here um, for a short period of time in Austin. Our neighbor happened to be Ron Yates. And as we were unloading our car and, and, and you know, taking our bags out the car, nice, wonderful guy that he is. Well, one thing, to enter, we didn't know he was Ron Yates as Ron Yates. <laughs> we did. We knew him as a really cool guy 
With long hair and flip-flops. Long hair, flip-flops, wonderful family. And his daughter, Tennyson, loved... We didn't have Emmy Lou yet. We had Waylon and... Our dogs. Our dogs, right. And so I remember Tennyson would just stop. And Waylon would come up and give her the hug, you know, where he puts his little shoulder blades on her, on your knees or your shins. And so, okay, well, I mean... Any part of that's good with me. I mean, if you like Waylon. So Ron, Ron saw us, you know, taking our bags out of the car and asked us if we'd been on a trip, where'd we been? And we told him, well, we're in this little tiny town. I'm sure you've never heard of it called Fort Davis. But it's so beautiful. We love it out there. And he said, I know Fort Davis. I was just out there harvesting grapes for my winery. And of course, we said, wait, hold up. You have a winery, number one. Number two, uh, they grow grapes out there. And he he told us about um, about the wine he had in barrel at the time that they had you know just harvested and gone through fermentation with, and he said, "I I wish more people would grow grapes out there. It's an AVA. It's a fantastic region." He also said, "When we said, wait, they grow grapes," and he said, "Yeah, our winemaker just said this is as good as anything he ever got out of Sonoma." Oh, really? So we were driving around the scenic loop, which is this highway in front of our house thinking if we could move out here, who gets to live out here? I mean, who, who's lucky enough for that? And maybe we can retire. And this comes up. And then when Ron mentioned that his winemaker said the chemistry was better than what they had gotten at times in Sonoma, that kind of changed things pretty dramatically. I mean, it, it, and this was about a two-minute discussion. Yeah, it planted a seed for sure. And we kind of, we're very analytical. We both come from a legal background. Um, we met in law school. And so we we like to think about things and sort of marinate on ideas. And uh, it took us a little while, but we kept thinking about it. And we would talk about it with each other and, of course, research. And we started reading books and we started, you know, looking up things on the internet about the ABA. There wasn't a ton out there, but we tried to find as much as we could. And then we ran into Ron again at a wine tasting and, um, you know, Dan mentioned to him, we have been thinking about this. Are, are you serious about, you know, people growing grapes out there? If so, we'd, we'd really love to come talk to you about it more and, and find out more about it. And what year was this approximately? This was 2000 and... You have a notebook with six, it still. So it was late 2016 <clears throat> when we ran into him, you know, with our cars parked next to each other. Um, it was early 2017, then I think January or February when we saw him at the wine tasting. Which was, interestingly enough, I'm from the Willamette Valley, and it was the Willamette Valley wine group that had come to Austin. And it was at the hotel a block from our condo. And what Mara omitted from that was in between our chance meeting and this event, I had researched it like finals. And I had... I'd found the Blue Mountain Winery that Mrs. Weisbach and family had started, learned a little about Gretchen Glasscock, not nearly as much as we learned later. So I had studied like finals and I was pouncing on that happy-go-lucky guy. So I was following him around and, and Mara said, don't, don't bug him, he's with his family. And I said, he said, if we had anything to talk about, we should talk to him. Well, I have something to talk about. And I, I've been thinking about this for six weeks. We're going to, I'm doing this. I, I got his attention. I said, hey, and before I could get it out, he goes, yes, have you thought more about it? And he basically ignored his family. I ignored mine. And we sat and talked. And 
I get back. Yeah, I was right, wasn't I? He wanted to talk. He 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 stopped talking to them to talk to us about our program, and we got an invitation to go see what they have in the barrels. He was right. He was right. So we we went out to Ron Yates at the time. They didn't have their tasting room yet. It was just the production space, and they were doing tastings out of there. It was when they had first built that space in between Johnson City and High. And so uh, we went out there. We tasted some of that wine out of the barrel. We um, talked for three hours. You know, we took a ton of notes. And again, we're we're curious people. We asked a lot of questions. Uh, and one of our questions was, who else should we talk to? You know, if we are going to do this and we're going to learn more about it, are there courses we should take? Are there people we need to meet? Are there questions we're not asking that you think we should be asking? And Ron was just so gracious and wonderful Uh, And really put us on this path. And one of the people he said we should talk to was Ben Calais. And that sort of introduced us to Ben. And Ben, um, obviously he's well known. We had his wines and it really opened our eyes to see what he was doing with Bordeaux varietals in Texas, being very new to Texas wine. I had not had much experience with that and Cab and Merlot and we were thoroughly impressed, right? His winemaking ability, honestly, the, the wine cave, how tasteful it was. The wine spoke for itself. He spoke about the wine. We were really impressed with him personally, as well as his wine. And his knowledge of the ABA. You could, we could tell when we first mentioned this area to him and that we had been trying to learn about it. We were very interested in it. He also had had some grapes and he had some wine in barrel from this area, from this ABA at the time. And he was very passionate about the region. I'm sure he probably thought we were nuts, <laughs> but, but it was a great conversation um, and has led to a wonderful friendship. And, and I didn't know the history. I didn't know how long he had thought of this area and the potential of it. I didn't know that until later, but it explained a lot. <laughs> and so that's that was 2017. Um, later that year, the fall, we came out here to look for property for the first time. And eventually, in January of 18, our offer was accepted on this particular site. And we closed in April and moved here a year and a half later. Here we are. And this to- is called the Vineyard at Blue Mountain? That's what we... We call it, it's a nod to the original vineyard that was here that Gretchen Glasscock yes. planted and, and opened in 1971. And then a couple of owners in between. And then as Dan mentioned, the Weisbach family, uh, especially Nell Weisbach, had and ran as a commercial winery. And that commercial winery was known as Blue Mountain Vineyard or Blue Mountain Winery. Sometimes you, you hear right. people refer to it as. And it is on Blue Mountain <clears throat> here in the Davis Mountains. And so as a nod to that, we we didn't want to sort of usurp, you know, what they had created and, and sort of act as if we were them, but we wanted to definitely give a nod to all that they've done. And, and we view ourselves as sort of the current stewards of what they created and built. And that vineyard had died before we came in. And so we were planning something new. So we, as an homage to that, we called this, uh, this site, the Vineyard at Blue Mountain. I have no idea how many people think about this or not, but when they do, and I'm asked, I would say at least a third of the time there is confusion as to this being the original spot or not. So let me be unambiguously clear. This is the original spot. There isn't another one. It's a quarter mile from our house. There's one vineyard on Blue Mountain, and that's a quarter mile up that way. 
That's so our that's vineyard. ours. <laughs> yeah. So the vineyard on Blue Mountain is a description, but I it's important to us both that Gretchen in particular, who I, I still think has never received, I guess the term these days is her flowers to me, her due. And we get, a, I get a personally just a little protective. She passed and she can't correct the record. And I do know that when people piggybacked off of it or distorted what she did, it hurt her and it marginalizes her accomplishments. And man, what she did, she, she brought Andre Telechev, you know, founder of Boulieu Vineyards. Apologies to people who speak French because I butchered that. The father of Napa Valley, that's what his Wikipedia entry refers to him as. He came out here with her in that spot, a quarter mile from where we're sitting, and said, You can do in the 70s, you can do what we're doing in Napa. You can do that very same thing here. This has everything you need. That's far more interesting than this silly myth that's been perpetuated that she hired NASA to conduct her weather data, which to be honest, a child would see how that's not possible. It's illegal. They don't do climate research. You have to be for private, for private citizens, for private citizens. And the real story is through networking and her research. And it's in her book that she wrote on the subject that people still perpetuate a myth. Through her research, she found access to people who had a wealth of publicly available data to anyone. She just actually found it mm-hmm. and found someone who, who could make it accessible to her. And that was her starting point. From there, she brought Andre Telechev halfway across the country to the Big Bend. That's the story. Yeah. And that is so cool. I mean, he was here in this... We're not real close to anything. <laughs> I want to um, call out exactly what the book is in case people might not have read it yet. I have mentioned it on the podcast before, but it's called Texas Wine Pioneers, and the author is Gretchen Glasscock. And I appreciated in the in the book her stories about how everything went down here. And I know you guys have had a chance to meet with her a few times. So tell me a little bit about what you think are her um, primary accomplishments that that either you found out in the book or you found out in your discussions with her? Yeah, we did. We were very, very fortunate to be able to have conversations with her um, after we had moved here and were, um, were replanting the vineyard. We had tried to find her and we couldn't, and she found us, uh, which was really special. And uh, we talked to her several times and about the project and about the vineyard. And she was always very interested in what was going on and what we were doing I'm really sad that she was never able to come and see it in person because I would have really loved to just see her face for her to be able to see it. But um, she she planted the original vineyard here, and it was roughly 50 acres of Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Sauvignon Blanc, and Chenin Blanc. And then she also had a test vineyard, you know, to try various other varieties and see how they would do here. There were a lot of similarities between our stories that we didn't know until we started talking to her. Um, Just like us, there was no expert, as Dan kind of mentioned, there was no one to tell her where to plan or what to do or how to do it. And so she assembled a team of experts in lots of different areas. 
And we were the same way. We tried to hire a viticulturalist. We talked to people in Texas. We talked to people in California. We talked to people all over the U.S. about possibly working with us. And frankly, no one wanted to work with us or or it wasn't a project they were interested in taking on for a variety of reasons. And so because of that, we had to do the same thing where we talked to a wildlife biologist to learn more about the wildlife in the area. We talked to a geologist to understand more about our soil uh, we talked to local ranchers who could tell us the weather patterns from year to year and even the microclimates and the microclimate here on this ranch. Um, we spoke to the people at the Borderlands Research Institute who do quail. We've done several quail studies with them on our property. That's the research arm at Sol Ross. They study the Chihuahuan Desert Biotech. We worked with Chihuahuan Desert Research Institute, the sort of a flower. Botanical Garden Nature Center. And you have this entire team of people and just any information that you can get. And she had done something very similar. Gretchen had done the same thing. I mean, she had talked, she had talked to people at the observatory who had weather data and climate data at the McDonald observatory here in Fort Davis, who had climate data for the region. So she was able to get access to that data and analyze it. She talked to Andre Telechev, for example, um, to learn about viticulture and what it would take to grow world-class wine. She talked to, um, the ranchers in South Texas about agriculture in Texas and what you would face. And in particular, what a young single lady might, the, the prejudices and, and things that she might be facing in the seventies at that time and, from that industry. Exactly. And so she, she planted a vineyard. She also, another similarity that really struck us that I thought was amazing about what she was doing at the time she was also very concerned about the ecosystem of the land and the region, not just the vineyard. So she she knew she was altering what was already here that nature had put in. You know, Vitus vinifera was not native, but she was very concerned about wanting to make sure the wildlife were also taken care of and were not disturbed. Their habitat was not disturbed any more than it would be by, you know, simply planting. She wanted to understand the other plants in the region and we did similar things. We we care very much about the other animals on the ranch. And we also, you know, we use native grasses as a cover crop. crop. And she did something very similar when she planted. She also was really just so smart in researching and taking kind of cutting edge or sort of these best methods from other places that made sense for her to use here and adapt here. So for example, uh, she used what at the time was truly revolutionary cutting edge technology that had just come to the U.S. from Israel. The called, Negev Desert. <laughs> called drip irrigation. <laughs> and she put that in the vineyard and it was new. People were not doing that at the time. She spoke to people in Israel about it. <laughs> Wow. It, Israel learn. in the 70s too, right? Israel, <laughs> not Israel 2023. I mean, it's just the, the, the diligence was impressive. And even not just this, I mean, 1971 is when this vineyard was sort of opened up. She had kind of the grand opening sort of ceremony. So it was really like late 60s, very early 70s when she's doing this. And so, you know, the title of her book, Texas Wine Pioneers, she is a true pioneer. And I am, I just, again, I was always so in awe of her and to hear her story straight from her and to hear her talk about uh, how she did what she did and just how she had the idea. And it was it was also kind of similar to us being exposed to wine and having great wine from all over the world. She had lived in New York before she moved back to Texas and eventually, you know, started this project. And and she was 
eating at fabulous restaurants and being exposed to all kinds of different cultures and drinking wine from Europe. And Tan- also at least tangentially involved with Warhol circle. I mean, it was a, she was a, she had a very rich, very abundant life yes. in New York. Very cool. I mean, geez. And also, you know, remember that time it's around the sort of judgment of Paris era. It's, you know, California was kind of becoming what it has now become was the early days of that. And she asked the question, if they can do it there, why can't we do this here? And that's really the question she set out to solve. She certainly never suffered from a lack of dreaming big. And I admire that so much about her. And I just, when I think of the, to me, the word is gumption. I mean, just the audacity (laughs) to do what she did in that era. And as Dan mentioned, especially considering her age at the time that she's a woman, she's breaking into a field that there were not women in in that era at all. And she's running a business, which was also not really heard of for women necessarily in that era. And she's just truly, truly a groundbreaker. And it was it was a pleasure to get to know her to the to the small extent that we were able to uh, because of this. Let me give you an opportunity to brag about this place in the world. What about this particular place where we're sitting are you excited to show the world in terms of wine quality? What makes this a special place to produce very high quality wine? I, I think it's, it's just incredibly unique and, and every, every wine region should be unique. You know, you should be able to taste the difference, even if it's the same variety, but if it comes from different parts of the world, you should be able to taste that it's, it's different. It doesn't mean one is necessarily better than another. um, But, but you should be able to tell. And I think here, one one trait first of all is the volcanic soil and 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 for us on this particular site our soil is incredibly rocky um and it does have a lot of organic matter so i think there's sometimes a misnomer about the desert in particular because we are high desert that there's not a lot of um life in the desert it seems very barren and in actuality there's immense biodiversity here and there's immense organic matter in our soil. Um, although it is very rocky, there is still soil <laughs> amongst the rocks. And uh, and so I think that's a, a unique combination. When I say it is rocky, it is incredibly <laughs> rocky. You get a core workout just walking through the rows in the vineyard. It is not, you know, smooth, beautiful, uh, even. Well, it's uh, beautiful. It is beautiful, but I mean, it's not smooth and even. I find uh, <laughs> plain valley floor, fine red dirt, not even valley floor, just fine red dirt flat to be the most uninteresting and not beautiful thing to me. So beauty's in the eye of the beholder. To each his own, yes. Correct. Um, so I think it's the, the volcanic soil in combination with the elevation. I mean, we're at, the vineyard is at 5,600 feet elevation. Uh, it is literally on the side of the mountain. It has quite a slope, quite a grade to it. It's not terraced, but it's close to the where you... The lowest slope's 5%, and it goes up to 10 at different points. It's, it's no joke. It's, it's on the edge of where you might consider terracing, I think. And so I think the combination of that slope and the high elevation, and with that elevation, you get this very arid climate. It's very cool here. Our temperatures do not get into the hundreds. We haven't had a hundred degree day really since we've lived here for four oh. years, maybe one. Four years ago, we we have the weather data for four years. Okay. <laughs> four years point. ago, I'm being we honest. had one hundred degree day. But, but our, you know, our typical temperature. In, in the vineyard. 
I mean, you go other parts of Fort Davis, you will get a hundred degrees. Yeah. Our vineyard hasn't been a hundred in years. And last year it was over 96 degrees for a grand total of 18 hours. So because it's so, it's also high desert, you, we get that big diurnal shift. So it's very cool nights. I mean, we, when, when we walk our dogs in the evening and first thing in the morning, it doesn't matter what time of year in July, I have on a fleece or a jacket in order to do that. Uh, so we have a big, a big diurnal shift, which is great. Um, the UV is more intense at this elevation as well, which Putting in a number to that diurnal shift. It's depending on the time of year on the hottest days, the diurnal shift in our vineyard has tended to be about 30 degrees, maybe more. Um, when it's, you know, 80, it'll, that number will be 80 degrees would be the peak or 85 degrees would be the peak. That number would be, you know, 20, 25 historic. But if that number gets a little bit warmer on the hot days, we're really going to have 30 degree diurnal shift routinely. Wow. And this is four years of weather data reported on 15 minute increments to support that. I didn't mean to interrupt. No. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's the combination of the high elevation, the volcanic soil, the slope, the mountain, the, the texture of the soil as well. Um, and those other soil attributes. If I could add a few things on that at times of the year, we have had 4% humidity. It's never 70 unless it's raining. I mean, so your humidity here generally is in the twenties based on our weather data. Um, your disease pressure is very low, uh, insect pressure low comparatively. So as Mara noted, there is a gross misunderstanding. We're a sky island. We get, in certain years, we'll get as much rain as the Willamette Valley on our site. Now, you go two miles in a different direction, they get eight inches of rain. That's not us. We're on a big granite mountain, which drops the dew point. It's a bad year if we don't get 20 inches of rain. That's a lot. So we're not in a drought-type situation. We have 220-gallon-a-minute wells on our property. We have seven wells total, all being double digits and not necessarily drilled for production. Just that's what we have. We have a boatload of water here. I think it's important for people to hear the term monsoon rains. And if one (laughs) of you wants to explain exactly what that means. So our rain, we have a rainy season here. And so usually late June... Definitely by 4th of July, if, if we're going to have a, unless it's a true drought year, uh, our rainy season will start and it'll go until September, October, maybe even into early November, you know, depending on the year. So the way we get our rain is uh, we typically would get during that rainy season, typically in the afternoon, a downpour, you know, a, a, a rain shower. Uh, and then it stops. I mean, it rains for an hour or so. Most days, some days longer, some days a little less, um, but but it kind of dumps the rain down and then stops. It's not like a drizzle, slow drizzle all day. And for us, what that does is obviously that irrigates the vines um, and it's giving it to them in one shot. But when it's not raining here, as Dan mentioned, the humidity is so low. So the rest of the day, including before and after the rain, it's very low humidity and we often have a very nice breeze, sometimes a little more than it, sometimes it's a little windy, but but definitely a nice breeze. So as soon as the rain stops, the humidity starts to drop. We have the breeze. 
it's going to dry off the clusters. So when you're when you're at the point in the season where you might be worried about things like mildew or rot on your clusters, um, we don't we don't have that issue, uh, and and that's very helpful. A part of the reason we don't have that issue is because we thought about it in advance when choosing the varietal. We picked cab loose clusters. I didn't pick things that are prone to rot. Right. Doesn't seem like a good idea when you get heavy rains in an hour. Just silliness, right? So I think a big part of what you're doing is planning. And we, Cabernet is particularly easy to grow. Now, um, if your climate isn't suited for it, you're. Yeah, I think it's just, it's just really well suited for this site for a variety of reasons. But, and that's one of them, definitely. Uh, the, it handles the, looser- the rain really well. If you pick some of the other varietals and people grow whatever they want for a lot of different reasons. And I have zero opinion on what people do if I'm not writing checks for it. So, (laughs) but in this area, if you're, if you have heavy rains and it's not cold, probably not a good idea to pick tight pack clusters prone to powdery mildew, rot disease, things like that. Mm -hmm. Cab is the polar opposite of that. And it makes a lot of sense. And we welcome those. It drops the temperature. June is our hottest month. Um, the monsoons, the heavy rains, the rains that come, they'll drop the temperature at times 15 degrees. And they'll drop it around mid to late afternoon. It's a fantastic time. Yeah. In Fort Davis, um, we have a festival every year, 4th of July in town. It's called the coolest 4th of July in Texas because it is the coolest place to be in Texas on the 4th of July. Um, our, our summers are quite nice. I thought it was a joke when we moved out here, when people said you'd need, you know, you know really you're wearing a sweatshirt and fleece. I thought okay. you were going to say it gets rained out every year. <laughs> no, no. no, sometimes, but, but that's the thing. It'll, it'll, it might rain on it for that hour or so in the mm-hmm. afternoon, but that's it. And so the festival goes on before and after one of my favorite, if anybody plays baseball and they, they have, if you played in the desert, um, I went to high school in Tucson and you would have these summer rains and the Alpine Cowboys are a semi, well, it's an unaffiliated, it's professional. There's no semi-professional baseball. They're paid to play, but they're unaffiliated. So Pecos League Baseball, one of my favorite things to do is to watch the Alpine Cowboys. And 4th of July, I, I I can't remember a time when that team hasn't – the team has acts as their own grounds crew. And there will be standing water at shortstop, at second base, and first base. The game will be delayed two hours. And the players are out there in a doubleheader, you know, squeegeeing oh the field, putting quick dry – it's okay because they usually have dollar beer specials at the concession. So those of us in the stands, we go get a few beers. But <laughs> it's it's just a part of it, and you put it together. I think last year they referred to it as Lake Alpine or something um, on the Coconut Lake. That's what it was. That's the stadium name. Yeah. Coconut Field is the the stadium, and and uh, it's called Coconut Lake last year. But then it dries up, and they're good to go. So, and and when we were in the vineyard earlier today. I told you that an issue that we have out here due to the rains and the rainy season is uh, chlorosis, which just, it's just a magnesium deficiency in the plants. That's one manifestation of it, but we are on well-drained soil and we're getting heavy rains, things leach out. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of an interesting fallout point here. 
Another way that we've kind of had to adapt our practices because of the that rain pattern is it's one of the many reasons why we do have a cover crop, not only in between the rows, but under our vines, which is unusual. Uh, and we've had a lot of people. Unusual in Texas. In Texas. and It's not unusual in like the Willamette Valley or some other areas. Yeah. It, in some growing regions, you know, you will see kind of nothing growing under the vines. And one of the main reasons why we have the cover crop that we do is because of erosion. So we get that rain. Remember, we're on the slope on the side of the mountain. If we didn't have grass with roots sort of clinging into the soil, our vineyard would <laughs> roll down the hill with the rains um, during that rainy season. And so, uh, so, you know, there are things that we have to adapt that make sense for us. It may not be things that other people in Texas do. It may not be things that other people in other parts of the world do because it just doesn't make sense on their site. But uh, I think a, what we one of the things we've learned in the past several years is a lot of grape growing is learning your site yeah. and adapting. We, adapting when it. we first got started, a particular person came to the ranch and, and said, yeah, you, you need all this grass out under your vines. You know, let's get that done. No, let's not do that. Because if that's gone, we're in the desert. It's irrigated. If that's open soil, do you think that's going to stay open? Well, no, then you're just using herbicide. No, I'm not. We've never sprayed an herbicide. That That's a God's honest truth. We have never, not one time, sprayed an herbicide out here. I have never sprayed an insecticide. Not one there, time. There are days... There are days I wish we had because we're we're instead removing weeds by hand, which you, is you do it manually, awful, awful work. But um, but no, we haven't, and we. But that's another reason for the cover crop is if you can establish it, it's gonna it crowds out um, the weeds, and and we intentionally chose essentially the same native grasses that were on that side of the mountain before we put the vineyard in. We just reseeded them and put them back, and so they're adapted. They're very drought tolerant. They're adapted for this climate. Um, they're adapted for this soil. And there are grasses. They are they are a true native plant um, to that spot, and so uh, they also have root systems. Be- again, because they're drought tolerant and because they're used to this environment that gets its rain in that sort of monsoon season only once a year, but has to survive all year. Um, their roots are not deep. They're not a deep rooted grass in the same way where they would be competing with the vines. Um, they, they've adapted to be able to, to survive in a more shallow root system. The grasses, and, and this is important, um, folks who are interested, uh, native seeds in Junction, Texas, does a really fantastic job of curating native seeds throughout the whole state of Texas, and they will work with you. I, I, it's a great company, and we have no affiliation with them. That's just who we buy it from. But they, for each different region, you can you can get the native seeds for that. So we have the Transpacus blend, and I've talked with them. Blue Grandma, Black Grandma, Side Oats Grandma, Hairy Grandma, Chino Grandma, Buffalo Grass, a host of the native grasses that we have out here, the bunch grasses and the grandma grasses. Bunch grasses, and I don't want ranchers cussing me out, so I'm speaking in broad generalities here, but... The bunch grasses tend to come in first and establish a floor, and then the, the other grasses come in. And if you, you saw the vineyard, the, the four-year block, we have no – the party block, which we planted, and it's now in its fourth leaf, 
we don't really have any weeds anymore. Um, we literally go in with have a Japanese gardening knife that is very effective on things like loco weed that have these tap roots. Others I can use a variety. We've, we've pretty much used every manual tool you can find, but what we found is a year, two years of manually doing that. Then the grass is You just have less to do. And now I don't even, we, I really don't even have to go in and weed it anymore. The grasses are, kind of taking care of it on the last block. I got a lot of work to do this year because mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're cleaning that up, but you put the native grasses that are supposed to be here. They take over, they crowd out your weeds and tomorrow's point on pick your site appropriately. We, we had several viticulturalist consultant vineyard managed type people who've come out and it's always the same thing. You need to cut this out. Why, why do you have anything under your plant, under your vines? And then we tell it, Oh yeah. Okay. Makes perfect sense. Sorry. I didn't think where we're at. You can't do that elsewhere in areas. And, and I'm not at all perpetuating stereotypes, just in an area that may have used industrial pesticides for decades. The weeds that survive that are a little different herbicides, herbicides, excuse me. The weeds that make it through that are a little different. And you may actually have to hook a tractor up to pull it out as opposed to pulling it out with your hand, mm-hmm. right? So context is really important. We're actually on a spot that has never been farmed or even grazed as far as I know. So it's pretty easy to deal with. We, we, the, the, Mara mentioned the soil material we have. When we first did the soil sample, you pulled it up before we planted anything. You put your hand in it. It felt like velvet. I don't know how else to put it. You're, it's dirt, but it didn't, it felt alive. It it's desert dirt on the side of a mountain, but you put your hand in it and it, it felt like velvet. It felt alive. I want to change direction a little bit and have you talk about the old vineyard, which we just drove through so I could see some of the original spot. I mean, there are a number of myths around what happened to the old vineyard. Is that something you want to sure. speculate on? Um, <laughs> I don't even know where to start with all of the myths. I will go to a trade event in Texas and people will tell me what happened here and yeah, they have no water. Well, they would be us just so you know. So I happen to have a little insight into this. There are two wells right by the vineyard. One's 120 gallons a minute and the other's 30. Uh, Oh, sorry. There's three and the other's 28 and those. So they did have water. Um, What happened? The real story is there was Pierce's disease to some degree. There was some Pierce's disease. It came from the nursery in all likelihood because that wasn't tested at the time. You weren't looking for that at the nursery the way you do now. And and we also believe that um, from uh, our conversations with Gretchen and just what we knew about her experience with the nursery. And again, you know, to Dan's point, it wasn't something that was ever tested for, ever ever thought about. Uh, when you were buying vines and at that time. Uh, so we, we, we're pretty confident. I mean, no one, I don't, I really don't think anyone knows for sure, but we're pretty confident that it likely started from some vines from the nursery that were procured at some point in time in the early days of the vineyard. And that doesn't mean you'll see, um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if they've pulled them up yet or not, but the last time I went to the Beaufrere, which is Beaufrere in Lemon Valley, is my personal favorite winery. And 
we got to do a vineyard tour and that was, that was great. And they were telling us that when their yield drops below a ton to the acre for this, it was the Beaufort vineyard. Then they pull it up because that's phylloxera. They used own rooted vines and didn't graft because at the time they were told, well, nobody's going to get phylloxera in the Northwest. They did. And so now you use um, grafted vines and that's, it's no fault. You you live and learn. And I've heard all sorts of myths about the sources of this nonsense. That's the one that makes most sense. But like Pierce's disease and phylloxera, it's, it's somewhat similar. There are of course different diseases and or different afflictions, but the vine doesn't die overnight. It is a, it is a long, slow death. And there are also things that we know a lot more about now about how to prevent it various farming practices and things to do to prevent it, but also how to manage it if you do did get it. And so that's one of the things we talked to Fran Pontash at AgriLife. Uh, she actually did her uh, some of her graduate research on Pierce's disease in this original vineyard that was here. And one of the things she's talked to us about is just the the sort of dormant season, water management, and sort of other aspects of vine health that could help Again, prolong. It's you're not going to cure pierces. You're never going to not have it if you right. had it. Um, but you can try. You can do things to prevent it, which we have tried to do. And again, now we're in an era where vines are tested for it, um, so we we feel confident we didn't have it. You know, coming in from the nursery. And our nursery is in Sacramento, way away from the the nursery practices are way different now as well. Our nursery is located nowhere near another vineyard. So that no, so you don't have vectors bringing stuff in, right? So the, the vineyard practices, they know what to look for differently. But it was Pierce's essentially um, that led to the eventual demise of the vineyard, and 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 at a certain point too, we and the Weisbach family, you know, in, in buying the property from them and and learning about Nell Weisbach's, you know, history here from them, you know, at a certain point they they kind of shut down the operation. As well. And so, and the vines were just kind of left. I mean, you saw when we went in the old vineyard, it's as if they just kind of walked away one day. The the old harvest bins are there, you know, all the infrastructure was there. And we didn't come along until, what, 12, 13 years later. But the vines didn't die overnight. I mean, we've talked to some neighbors who were in the vineyard, you know. Relatively recently. Yeah, certainly long after the vines were kind of left here to fend for them, themselves. Uh, and the vines were still alive. They were at least, you know, some of them were at least still green <laughs> during the growing season. So it it still took a while for the vines to eventually die. When By the time we came here in 2017 to see it, the property, and then when we bought right. it, actually closed on it in 2018, the vineyard was completely dead. I also think there are convenient excuses that are being told, right? It's easy to blame this on disease or something else. It, my understanding of it is the winery proved to make fruit better than Mrs. Weisbach ever really expected, but it was never in today's parlance and Texas wine. It was never a William Chris operation in, in its heyday. You would have three acres at a given time being farmed. It was run out of a building that we just knocked down and are reskinning with spray foam insulation, uh, corks that didn't match bottles that weren't the right size. So it was very encouraging to us because the grapes, it made world-class wine. We also have to remember at that time, like, you know, it's not like today 
we're we're in a very very remote area. I mean, we're an hour and a, we joke we're an hour and a half from a Walmart. We're three hours from a commercial airport. An hour and a half from a small Walmart, not even a good one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not that's a, the not Fort a, Stockton Walmart. Not man. a super Walmart, no. Um, and so, so it is very, very remote out here and it's very difficult even today to get things in an era where we can order things off the internet and get them here relatively quickly. It's, it's still some can be somewhat of a challenge. So, you know, at that time, no procuring criticism. bottles, procuring court, all those things I am certain were much, much more difficult than even it would be today. But even with all those challenges, I understand that you had some wine that was uh, grapes were grown on this vineyard and that it was quite tasty. We did. It was, I'm a warrior and I, I, I remember that night really vividly because we met with our, our partner in the winery, Ben Calais and Victoria Calais, wife. We had dinner at our home and we had two bottles of the wine and I expected it to be garbage, not because the wine was garbage, but it was a 94 and a 98. They were Gifts. It, it was a family thing, so they weren't stored properly. And we were opening these in 2018, so by that point, you know these are these bottles have been around for a while. They've been They're, in a Colorado garage for about 15 years, by my math. You know, good and bad. A Colorado garage for 15 years with corks that don't match. You know, had, I'm I'm hoping for feedback. We had low expectations. We had low expectations, and I I just hate uncertainty, which is not really the best trait in life because most of life's uncertain. So this is like the cross I have to bear, but we had, we had bought the property we were in, man. I mean, I was looking for a way to quit my dream job at the university of Texas so that I could work remotely out here to grow grapes, which I'd never done in my life. Had no idea what I was doing. I just, I loved to hunt. I loved the outdoors. I knew they had elk, black bear, all sorts of stuff and a high ceiling for grapes. I'm in. Um, this sounds cool, but I'd like a little confirmation that we're not chasing the ghost. So <laughs> we have these two bottles and I, I remember sitting up there in the top floor of our condo building with a utterly spectacular view of the Capitol. And I can't even think about it. I'm just pacing. This is going to be terrible and it's not going to show me anything. Why am I doing this? This is just, I was an idiot. I should never have even brought this up. These are not, we drank it. And I remember the first sip and, and I just thought, oh, wow, this can't be right. There's no way it can be this good. Uh, this can't be right. We, we, Dan and I looked at each other. We didn't, we, we didn't trust our own palate. You know, we, we didn't believe <laughs> I, we were both thinking this is really delicious, <laughs> But we were afraid that we just had like the rose-colored glasses on and, you know, it really wasn't delicious. So then we turned to the much more experienced palates at the table. The pro- which we, we, we referred to the professionals, the Ben pro- and Victoria here, like, okay, you, you guys are pros. Yes. And they, thankfully, they confirmed and, and Ben in some pretty colorful language that which it was. Which we still have on video. Yeah, that it was, in fact, it was, in fact, delicious. But the wines were, you know, even at that age... They had they had all the all the things you would expect in an aged cab. Or one was a cab, one was a cab merlot blend, fifty fifty. Um, all the things you would expect in an aged wine of that type. It had that t- those tertiary notes of soy sauce, all that kind of oh, umami, God. you know, cooked mushroom kind of wonderful flavor um, that I personally love in an aged wine like we that. All love in an aged Bordeaux yeah. varietal. I mean, that's yeah. what makes them. That's yeah. what makes them magic. But it also, what I was just blown away from 
was sometimes when you get an older wine like that, I find the the then the the fruit is very thin and they they feel almost thin. And this did not feel that way. I you still also the fruit characteristics came through and they were they were more stewed kind of fruits, but they were they were varietally correct fruits and flavors in the wine. And then also it's a 24-year-old um, wine, by the way. It was balanced. It ha- it had maintained its acidity as well. And I think that's probably why it aged so well. Um, you know, I think because of our climate and our cool nights here, what we have what we now know, we didn't know at the time when we were opening those bottles and tasting them, is that we do have a, a great ability here to maintain acidity. And we've done some test harvests. So in second leaf and then third leaf finds so far, and um, so we kind we know the chemistry that we've had uh, in those two, you know, small again, just very experimental harvests, and and now I see why that wine did have acidity, and that's one of the reasons why it was able to age the way that it was. Um, but it maintained it. It so it was it was just they were beautiful. We had decanted other wine. And then oh, Victoria had bought brought us a, a fabulous Saint-Amy bottle of Grand wine <laughs> to have with dinner, uh, and we were so excited. We drank, but <laughs> we drank a lot of wine that night because <laughs> we were so happy. Just to cover a couple of points, there we had a, a Saint Emilion Grand Cru that Ben brought. So this is the real thing from France. It just we had a Barolo. And if I'm not mistaken, we also brought a Napa Boutique wine that was pretty stupidly expensive, actually. But this was an excuse to drink it. And I'm very critical. If 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 you're in our circle, um, I'm probably more critical It'd be just because of the standard. You, just, you don't want to look like a fool. You want to do a good job. So I'm very critical of the people on our team. That wine outperformed every single thing we had that night. No, not even close. I, to this day, I say that is one of the 20 best wines I've ever had in my life. I, the, the 98 Pure Cab, I didn't like as much as the, it was Infierno is the name. And if anyone's listening to this, if you have any bottles of the Infierno 94 reaches, please, <laughs> for all that's holy, reach out to us and we will gladly buy them because it is insanely good and very precious to Maybe us. Maybe you shouldn't tell them that. I do have a <laughs> limit on the it. price. Right, exactly. If you happen it. to have it, tell us. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna want to drink it themselves. It's so good. Well, and if you do, good for you. But if you <laughs> They would, could invite you and you drink it with them. That's right. Absolutely. They could be friends. Right. Absolutely. I will, I will recreate the meal because I, I still remember what I cooked for us to have dinner and that we... So I will say this is... Uh, a meal I would like to recreate once we have our own wine in the bottle from our new plantings is we had braised short ribs and a mushroom risotto, and it was just perfection nice. with those wines. Uh, I want to see really the great. bottle if you still have it around before I leave. I want to take a picture. But... I, I'll get that. Okay. Tell me um, what you've talked to Ben Calais about in terms of what kind of wine you want to make here. Well, we've talked a lot, and we've gotten to know Ben really well you know it started as we respected him very much we respected what he did uh i think he came to know that we were serious people we were taking this seriously and then over time we've developed a really close friendship and with him and victoria and it sounds very cliche to say it but i do think we're very kindred spirits and what we want to do here and and we mentioned earlier but one of the things that really 
bonded us with him and sort of drew us to him was how he had such a passion for this area. I think we all want to make a world-class wine, not a great Texas wine, not a great Davis Mountains wine. Um, We want to make a truly world-class wine here. We think Cab is perfectly suited for this site. And that's why we're growing Cab and that's why we're making Make, going to be making those wines. And I think like us, Ben wants to express this particular site. Um, we do believe in terroir. <laughs> we do think it exists. Uh, we, um, we all want a wine that shows it is of this place. Uh, I think one of the things I'm most interested to find out, and Ben and I've talked a little bit about this, is you know, what's the difference between the various blocks in the vineyard? Uh, we do have three different clones that we've planted of cab on two different rootstocks. And so, you know, what do those different combinations, how do they potentially express themselves? And Ben is referred to it as, as the winemaker giving him as, as broad a palette um, as we can. And so trying to vinify those different sort of blocks and the different combinations separately so that we can, hopefully one day taste what those differences are and then figure out what the final wines will be. Uh, but that's another way that I think we will be able to show, you know, of this place exactly what that wine, that wine is. I think it is unique. We're not Napa. We're not Bordeaux. We are going to be our own thing, but I don't think there's any reason to think that we can't grow uh, and make wine that can measure up against those other great wines from other parts of the world. It's exciting. I know that's bold <laughs> to say, but, uh, but again, I just think it's special and unique. And from what we've seen so far, it's very encouraging. It, it, they're young vines, sure. Uh, but it's still very encouraging to see where it can go. And I think it's a testament to choosing the right variety, the right farming practices, the right, ultimately the right winemaking practices for the site. And, and one of the things I love about Ben's winemaking style is it's very respectful of the grapes. And so if Dan and I are going to put in as much effort as we are into growing the grapes, how we do, there's so much that we have to do by hand here just because of the scale and because of the, the, the particulars of the site. It's a lot of work and a lot of effort. And so we want someone who's going to take just as special care of the grapes once they're handed off into the winery. Um, and, and even though Ben is a winemaker, that doesn't mean Ben's not coming and walking in the vineyard with us. And we're not talking to him about how we're, how we're farming and um, ideas we have, or, you know, Dan is very great about thinking of experiments we can run and things we can try. And should we try this on this, this one little section of the vineyard and see how it goes. And, uh, and we talk about all those things with Ben because we all look at it as it's the, it's the whole, it's the total, it's what's, what's going to eventually be poured into someone's glass. And I hope used at a special meal. Um, I hope that bottle is going to be open and shared for a celebration or for a special moment in someone's life. And so you know, we all care about every part of the process. It's not just like, well, you're the grower, you're the winemaker, and we're never going to really talk about anything other than how we pass the grapes from one to the other. I love it. I know he'll do an awesome job because he's awesome. He is. I agree. 
So currently in your vineyard, you have fourth leaf cab, third leaf cab, and second leaf cab. We do. We do. And so total acres planted? We have just over three acres planted so far. Okay. So you've been at this for a minute. What do you anticipate uh, the next three years might look like? If I could have a comment on Ben later. It's just important. I don't say this that often. Ben's become one of my really good friends, honestly. Um, and that speaks volumes to Victoria. Ben and Victoria become very close to us. Uh, I, it obviously speaks to what we think of them as people. But I, I, I don't even know where the lines – I don't – I know where I'm not – my lane is not anything related to winemaking other than helping with the grapes and whatever heavy equipment he needs me to push. I can do that. But beyond that, I don't know anything about winemaking. After that, I can't tell you where the lines go. Ben's always in the vineyard. We're always asking. We're always coming up with ideas, talking with Ben and Victoria about – the business. And I mean, I, I suppose, <laughs> I suppose what means a lot to me and why I know I just, I feel so great about the partnership apart from being good friends where there's a level of trust, which is so important when we sit and drink wine, when we're together, that's an excuse for us to drink cool, nice, good, interesting wines. That's, what we do together and we cook and have have good food. But I think we all want to make something together, like what we're drinking. And if you can accomplish that, I mean, honestly, for me, (laughs) if, if someone takes a bottle of wine that we make and says, this is one of the 20 best wines I've ever had. And you know, they drink good wine. I'm done. In my life, I, I mean, I've accomplished something, and, and you're doing it in an area. We have, what, 2,300 people in this county. The Big Bend area is the size of New England, and you have fewer than 100,000 people. If you're able to produce a wine of that caliber, and you can produce it on this mountain up here, man, you have really, you've really done something. And, and I think that's what we want to do. And I think that's with the vision. That's to me that 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 that's why the partnership is exciting. We all really want to do that, and the concept of what's the tasting room going to look like—it takes care of itself. I don't care. You put that in the bottle, you've kind of transformed. I mean, you've had a huge impact. I mean, that's a big deal, and it's been done on this ranch before. This isn't something we know we can't do. So that's important. And I go back to that night. What I think I said that night was, I don't need any guarantees we're going to do this. But when I drank that bottle of 94 Infierno, I know what we can do. And that's all I needed out of this. I mean, in order to put, to, to put my legal career kind of on hold and change it to be the rancher grape grower when I have no idea what I'm doing when we started out we bit off a huge sandwich without having any idea of what we were really getting into and we did it because of that I mean we really did it because we wanted to make something like that that was it 
when we drank that bottle and I knew it was possible, that's all I wanted. I just wanted to know that all of that work, there are no guarantees, but a real possibility of making something world-class in your corner of the world was possible. That's what gets you, honestly, that's what gets you out of bed. That's why you go when you can, your back's hurting from six days of pruning and working your legal job. The idea that you may make just one bottle of that for, for me, Ben's made a lot of good wine. I, I never have one bottle of that. That's kind of electric to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Probably more than you wanted, but that tells yeah. the story of it. I'm, I'm going to ask you one more question and then get out of your hair. <laughs> well, we're going to have to do a part two in like a year. Okay. <laughs> Next time I come out here. But for today, I talk too much. I'm sorry. No, it, I mean, it's all great. And I'm sure the next two hours would be great too. But like at some point, I need to let you get on with your lives. In the next two or three years, what do you see happening here on this site? So I think we will expand and continue to plant more acreage. Uh, we took off this year from planting. So we have planted each year of the past three years, we've added more vines. We want to get the the three plus acres that we have now really dialed in and see, for example, the various clone and rootstock combinations, you know, is one better suited here? Are, th- are they all three working, all three clones working, both rootstocks working or not, and so on. Uh, so we really want to want to get that going and kind of know where we're going to be with it first. Uh, so we've taken this year off of planting. We will resume in the next three years, we will resume planting. So we will add more acreage and our eventual plan is to get up to about, we think probably around 10, somewhere around eight, eight to 10, probably, um, depending on our yields. So we don't really even know what our true yields are going to be because this year is the first acre coming up on what will be our first commercial harvest we hope if the year is good and we survive it so um so we've got to figure a lot of that out uh but in three years hopefully if all goes well we'll also have wine in a bottle and then we'll be able to you know dan talked about that dinner and tasting the old wines that were produced here and you could taste the potential um, you know, we'll be able to taste the potential in these new plantings as well once we have that wine in the bottle. And and that'll happen soon. I'm guessing it's going to undergo some oak aging. So it's not like it's going to be immediate <laughs> gratification once you get your first harvest. No, it is, it, is a, it is a long process. So it's probably a harvest and release two years later mm-hmm. kind of situation. And the three-year window, I, I almost have to go back a second to do that. To answer that question properly, we emphasize a concept that I learned from kind of like the father figure to me, Tim Fallon. I'm going to forward this to him so he'll get a kick out of this. Crawl, walk, run. We we did one acre and then two acres and then three acres because we, we wanted – we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we had consultants, and but it, I've never done this. I've never raised anything and not really grown anything by doing one acre and then two and then three, you're slowly learning. And you saw the vineyard, the first acre, the planting pretty rough. I mean, the, 
we did what we thought was right. They were going <laughs> to. The rows are not straight. They're not straight, <laughs> which actually, by the way, has been great for the hail net because now I can get that taut and tight. I had no idea it was going to. I thought later when, when we planted much more straight, I actually have to come up with some Rube Goldberg kind of crap in order to get the the hail net to have the proper spacing so it's taut and will repel the hail. Well, apparently, if you just go cattywampus in your planting, you can use the rebar as the training hours and and so our our hail nets are lined up pretty well but the second year was miles apart um we had clearly 10 foot spacing between the rows we backfilled it built roads we took the skid steer used the bucket and built roads to go back and forth and um we learned each time and the uptake rate grew with each year so now what we want to do for the next year or two really is what I'm most comfortable with. I want to sit on what we have and do the experiments and figure out what the timing of water, just really drill down on the three acres that we have so that when we expand to seven or 12, something along those lines, your concern is how do we do the logistics of additional plantings and yes, there's still some new so, uh, new soil, some new things we need to learn. But by and large, we've covered, hopefully, the 80-20 kind of principle. You've covered a lot of the the major points on, on your three acres. Um, so the next two years are drilling down on what we need to do, timing. Our vines are doing great. They're alive, which is no minor thing in Texas weather with ups and downs. They're doing, they're doing very well to get to a point where we're making the quality of wine that we really want to make. <clears throat> when you look at those vineyards, you, you're not talking about a six year vineyard saying, Oh boy, this is world-class wine. And you're sitting, no, you're talking about hallowed ground of Bextoffer Tokelon, Las Piedras, Dr. Crane, um, Hal Mountain, they have a reputation that comes from 50 and 60 years and people, families farming that and you learn those lessons. So we're hoping to get further along and down that road. Um, in our model, we're a Cabernet Sauvignon vineyard only. I happen to love Pinot. I love a lot of other varietals. Merlot. We, we were talking about Merlot earlier today. Merlot is, I don't, I think I probably prefer Merlot to cab. Although I hate to say, I, I say that and then I get a world-class cab and I change my mind. But um, the point is we are so many other things that we like besides cab, although we very much like cab. We're growing cab because it, to our knowledge, it is the best suited varietal to our site. It also is wonderful that it's a wine that people like to buy, which sometimes as a grower, you forget. It, you do have to sell this stuff. And so we're fortunate in that respect. But we're growing cab because it, it grows well here. I like to joke, uh, Mara mentioned chemistry earlier, and this is, this is actually very important. Because as far as I know, it's also exceedingly rare. I don't know of anyone else who's been able to do this. In the second and third years, where you're going to get a lot more variability, these are juvenile plants, the published numbers that I've seen in the vineyard from a harvest at, it was 
Las Piedras and Dr. Crane. So they're Beckstoffer vineyards. Our chemistry was absolutely online with that. And what I mean is for the bricks number of 26 in year one, we had 26 bricks and Mar, you'll have to tell me the pH. I think it was a touch over three, four, 3.39 pH at 26 bricks in Texas with tannins that are, we have white ACE true value hardware store little buckets and it was staining the bucket in 30 minutes. And those numbers are on par with the Beckstoffer vineyards in California. So that to me showed what the potential is. And obviously there's a different profile and in no way am I saying that we're going to be on par with that. I, I, or, I, or that the wine's going to taste, would taste the same. It wouldn't. But, but the chemistry was very, very encouraging. It's encouraging. In, in, in Texas, you struggle with um, pH, right? It's just the chemistry is something that you spend a lot of time working with. And for us to get those numbers, and it was funny, I was doing research on new clones that we may or may not want to plant. And I came across uh, a, a preeminent Napa Valley winemaker. And his comment was, I mean, numbers only tell you so much. For example, you can get 26 bricks and 3.5 pH, and that would be textbook telling you it's perfect. And we're doing even better. And, and so to get that in Texas on Cabernet Sauvignon, man, that was that just that that either does happen or it doesn't. You don't get if you have three eight pH, you're not going to be able to change your practices to get to three three. It's just not possible. It's like a receiver. Great, you're a good high school receiver. You run a four nine forty, but then a kid blisters a four two. Yeah, that one's different, and that one's never going to be that one. It's it's what keeps you motivated in this process because we we we've chosen to do a project that is all going to be all estate grown so we've not bought grapes from other growers and and, you know in an effort to to go ahead and get wine out while our vineyard is still young and not yet productive Uh, and so because of that it's a very long slow hard road and and we chose that and we're we're fine with that but it it can be demoralizing some days. And so you have to find ways along the way to keep yourself motivated and to at least to Dan's point, kind of know you're on the right path. And so seeing that chemistry is, is really helpful because it makes us feel like we still have so much to learn and there's so many things we could be doing better, but we're, we're headed there. And again, like I said, like we, in those old wines, you could taste the potential you know, seeing that chemistry and kind of seeing some of the early results at least lets us see what the potential is um, and that there's a very high ceiling out here. We're very big believers, honestly, in this entire AVA. I think it's incredibly special. Um, And this particular site, I think, is just the history, what has already been done here before, and then all of these very unique characteristics about it, including being you know, on the mountain itself, just I can't wait to see what happens. I know I've got to wait a while, just like everybody else, but I really can't wait to see what can happen here. You know, a couple of points. I, I remember Mara, Mara highlighted something that you have to go through it to appreciate. 
the grind is a challenge. And when you're doing your own estate winery, you're, you're just waiting for your own fruit. And that is one of my closest friends called the other day and asked when we were going to release our first vintage. And I told him the hope is that we think we can get a barrel if weather cooperates, maybe even two this year, that'd be really great. It was great. So when can I buy it? Oh, two and a half years after that. And he said, wow, I didn't realize how, how much of a long-term project this really is. And I said, yes, it, it is. I, I knew that when we bought it yet, I lost sight of that in the interim and it's hard. And I, I use the word discouragement that that's a, a good term that works for me to explain what happens when you're in your grind and you're in the ebbs, not a flow. That'd be an ebb. <laughs> and you know, we, we, I'm trying to think of how many days in a row I've been in the vineyard doing something in addition to my legal job, just trying to keep up with training, pruning. We have hail nuts up, but we get 40, 50 mile an hour winds. So we have to go back and okay, where, where did this rip? Let's go fix that. And we still aren't going to have one. We don't have people coming saying, we don't have people coming into the ranch telling us, oh gosh, I like this or I don't like this, but at least they're coming in and drinking our bottle and I get to show them. You're just grinding away. And fortunately, y'all came and this is a real highlight for us that we get to talk to you and share what we do nonstop with people. I apologize for probably talking too much and too fast, but, um, well, and, and we, that's where encouragement, you know, from Ben helps. Ron Yates continues to be uh, the, the ray of sunshine that he is. He's like my hype man. (laughs) (laughs) So true. He's such a positive person and he's given us a ton of encouragement as well. And, and lots of people in the industry have, and then of course, you know, family and friends and even, even people we don't know, but who reach out to us either like through social media, you know, just to say they're, they're following us and um, you know, they're, they're kind of rooting for us. It, that, those are all the things that really help keep you going. There's one anecdote. It means a lot. Two years ago when we did our first test harvest, it was tough. I mean, that was the second year growing. I, I hadn't even left the ranch in over a year. It's just hard. The pandemic. And pandemic. Was- it, it, I mean, you're grinding. I mean, it, it was hard on us, on everybody. And it, we'd had some weather issues and just, you're learning as you're going. I don't, I'm a perfectionist in agriculture with no experience. That's, that's really hard. And I didn't want to do a harvest. And at first I was a little like, why are we doing this? This is, I actually have to get these things ready for dormancy. Why are we messing with this? We do the harvest, we get those in just stupidly great numbers, and Ben's in the side by side with me. I mean, it, it was it, normally I would remember exactly what I was going to do, but because that wasn't important, I can't even tell you. I, I'm sure it was to get Ben's or something, but I don't actually remember. I just looked at him and I said, "Man, I I really didn't want to do this, but geez, I needed this." I mean, I, I was really beaten down. And then we get these numbers. And honestly, I'm getting pretty emotional just talking about it now. <clears throat> we get these numbers. 
we're getting Napa numbers and I don't know what I'm doing. I, I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I just pay attention. If it looks bad, I'd research it and try and check it. I call but we're getting Napa numbers in the middle of nowhere without any help. And I he said, well, that's why I wanted to do this. You guys really needed to pick me up. How does he, I just, uh, how did you know? I mean, he's, he, you know, they're in Johnson city. We're here, but he knew that we needed something like that. And so when you're asking, how do you know a partner? That's the kind of stuff that I actually did need that. And I still actually rely on that to this day in tough times that, that remember what we're capable of doing here. And so, and you always have tough days. Um, cow decides to scratch an itch on its back and knocks out our irrigation manifold. Great. That's actually something that's going to happen at some point. So I'm not picking something that's not going to happen, but that's your Tuesday. That's a bad day. And you're going to have to get that fixed. And and you're going to have to think of something that gets you through having your partners put those things in your path. That's how you know you're with the right folks. And sitting at dinner thinking about, I don't want to make something that people buy. I want to make something that people remember went this dinner for 10 years. I have struggled with this actually. And I won't embarrass the person who did it, who said it. Um, she's pretty prominent food historian and author. But I, I remember telling her, I just left the university of Texas where I was working with a Nobel laureate weekly. Um, John Goodenough invented the lithium ion battery, the crux of every EV thing. I was working with him weekly for commercialization of that to save the planet. And now I'm making stuff that gets people drunk. Okay. One of the last things I did at UT, I ran the office of technology commercialization and we would commercialize the research. So the professors were the geniuses and did all the work. We just sort of helped bring it. But that included the protein that formed the, the basis for the Pfizer vaccine for COVID, right? You get started on those things. So I go from doing that to growing grapes for wine. And if you look at it from a very basic, well, this gets people drunk, great. No, it's not that. What I've learned is when you sit down to dinner with people and they have a, an epic bottle of wine, and we're talking about making 750 cases a year. We're making small boutique that's going to be expensive. I, that's important because that helps pay the bills, but it's going to be expensive, but it's all based on quality. We just want to make the absolute best thing we can make, period, and we will do whatever it takes to do that. That's not a wine you drink every day. That's a wine you drink with a meal and for memories. That, in my mind, and she helped me with this. She was saying that you can't really look at it in those terms. You just pursue the things that really move you, and you'll find that uh, you're going to do good things. It, it won't be as simple as what you think, but you're not going to necessarily see that at this point. And what she really taught me, and, and her husband is hyper technical electrical engineer. If I said who he, who he was, I'd give that away, but he's an engineer's engineer. And she's telling me, you can't look at it from that perspective. You need to look at it more holistically and think about, we had a long discussion. She goes, think about how many great wines have probably changed the course of history. A meal, 
you get people, heads of state together over a great wine, which was the fuel of the meal. And they're not getting loaded. So it's, it's, this isn't a euphemism for getting drunk. They're actually doing negotiations of where people might die if it doesn't work. But wine is a part of that. The point is you have a, a momentous life event, 50th anniversary, a birthday. Somebody's having, somebody may be having a rough day bad day at work they decide in in ours with cab it would be a steak or something like that they decide this i'm having a tough day i'm gonna spoil myself and it changes their whole reflection on it mm-hmm. is that any less important than for that person's mental health or those events in someone's life how do you rate that with other things i i don't know and that's not my call i know that making a product that can have that impact on people is something that motivates me so I leave it at that. I know that's important to make people's lives better. Absolutely. Heck yeah. <laughs> Laura believes it too, I can tell. I do. I do. I mentioned this before, but I feel like a lot of eyes of the Texas wine industry are on you guys because everyone is excited about what you're doing here. And through your writing and your photos, your blog posts and your social media, um, people are discovering this area. They're discovering the struggles and the joys of working out here. And I think that um, folks are just excited about the wine that's to come and and they want to just continue to see you succeed. And you have already succeeded. You've kept this whole vineyard alive for several years. That does feel Most like, of it. That does feel like an accomplishment. So the only thing that died were either these ants that, man, they'll play a whooping on you so like okay fine we dealt with them when we knew about it and then an unseasonal freeze so the two things that cause death i feel pretty comfortable that that's just agriculture yeah, well, that is farming and you can't control every aspect but I'm like you that. said you've learned and i know that you'll continue to to learn and do your best and you're aligned with great folks that are um, gonna show off your grapes in the best possible way we're trying we are I really don't, actually, I don't know that I've ever had a public voice. So one thing I have thought about saying, I, I, in the Texas wine industry, we really rely on a lot of the people who don't grow and they don't own a winery, but podcasts, uh, authors, bloggers, the tireless people who volunteer at Twiga, all of our marketing events, the state fair, the people who are retired, who work at tasting rooms, they're not doing that to really get paid. The paycheck ain't that great. They're doing that because the community of Texas wine and they're dedicating their time and they don't have a financial interest in it. And from the bottom and, and those have every category of those folks that we have spoken to have been a hundred percent supportive of everything we've done. It's been really hard it's been a challenge rewarding, but it's been challenging and the support from all of those categories has helped us in ways I never really thought. So I wanted to thank people for that and to also emphasize as part of the Texas wine industry, patronage and support is arguably more important than growing grapes and making wine because without the patronage and support, I can grow and I can make wine and it won't really matter. So 
I really wanted to thank folks for doing that and to make sure that the people who do that, at least from my perspective, have an understanding of how integral and how important they are to the industry. It's appreciated, definitely. Well, I'll wrap this by saying I appreciate your support of my podcast. I think you guys were some of my very first listeners on the very first day, and I had no idea um, who you were, but I think, Mara, you posted on our Instagram page saying, I've already listened to all three episodes. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't even know this person. You know, that grocery store is not close by. And so every every time I make a grocery run, I listen to the podcast and it's great. I get to I get to learn something new. I get to hear from a new to me voice in Texas wine or occasionally it's somebody I know and love and admire. And so uh it's a lot of fun for me too. That's awesome. Well we'll do this again soon and maybe taste some of your wine. That'd be great. We would love thank that. you for having me. Thank Thanks. you for thank you for doing this and thank you for your interest. Of course. And I want to get Ben. If Ben Kelly is listening, come on my podcast. Thanks, Dan and Mara. I absolutely cannot wait to taste my first wine from your grapes. Listen, if you're not already, be sure to follow the Sharps on Instagram. That's at Sharp Fam Vines or on Facebook, Sharp Family Vineyards. Shortly after my trip, the vineyard was pummeled with large hail, but thankfully the hail nets did a good job of protecting the fruit that was covered. You can see how the life of a grape farmer is not for the faint hearted. Thank goodness for friends like Ben Calais, who provide reassurance at just the right time, and for hype men like Ron Yates. Let's call those the gold star recipients for this episode. Well, that's it for now. I'm starting my summer schedule and we'll just be releasing one episode a month for the next few months. But catch me in July for a sit down with Amy Nimick, aka Hill Country Amy, the new co-owner of Texas Wine Lover and a real mover and shaker when it comes to Texas wine. Get in touch. You can send your feedback, questions or ideas for future episodes to texaswinepod at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out the episodes that you might have missed and be sure to watch for my upcoming Davis Mountains trip report on Texas Wine Lover website. If you've been enjoying this podcast for a while, please consider supporting it by donating virtual Texas wine. That's how you can help me defray my podcast expenses like attending conferences and podcast web hosting services. I sure appreciate it. You can do that at thisistexaswine.com. Finally, thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Be sure to download the new Texas Wine Lover app and use it to plan your next trip to Texas wine country. Cheers, y'all. <laughs>